season edition of the show before the show from MILB.com, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. My name is Tyler Mond. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. Uh, how, how are things on at Thursday night now that I'm they, speaking uh, Thursday uh, morning? You're speaking Thursday morning. I'm speaking Thursday night. We were doing a uh, a trans-Pacific show yet again. I guess it's like fully – it's like transcontinental and trans-Pacific. Yeah, it depends have, on which way you want to go. Six all the way. way yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, yeah, things are good. Uh, we are into the second round of the uh, U18 Baseball World Cup. Championship game is coming up on Sunday. Uh, most of our fans, I would assume, are going to be most interested in the United States. The U.S. today beat um, Australia in their first – um, we call it the super round, the second round, which is the top three teams from each of the opening round groups. They advance and play each other. They cross the brackets. And then <clears throat> we determine the metal game participants based on uh, head-to-head matchups and, you know, runs scored and runs allowed and all the weird things you have to do in a, a short-term tournament. But uh, the U.S. is now part of one of a kind of a group of teams at the top of the super round standings at two and one. So they're in a good spot. Um, Canada has basically been eliminated from uh, metal contention. There are a couple of already drafted prospects on that team. Um, third baseman TJ Schofield, Sam who's a, an A's prospect. He was drafted in the 12th round this year. And uh, Desan Brown is a really, really promising outfield prospect in the blue Jays system. I think he's their 18th ranked prospect now uh, via MLB pipeline, but already a couple of pro signed guys on that Canadian team. And they are uh, probably pushed out of, of metal contention. Now they took a loss against Japan tonight in which, uh, an absolute phenom pitched for Japan and ended up striking out 18 batters in seven innings, uh, which is, you know, pretty good. Um, Japan's actually got a couple of guys on their roster that are sort of the, I don't want to call them the next Shohei Otani's because Shohei Otani is such a unique dude, but um, there have been multiple comparisons um, between Shohei Otani and Ruki Sasaki, who is kind of the main phenom uh, on this Japan team. Uh, he's not even the one who pitched tonight. The one who pitched tonight was Yasunobu Okugawa, who struck out 18 in seven innings. Uh, Sasaki started warming in like the fifth or sixth inning of that game. He hasn't pitched yet in this tournament. He's had a blister issue. Uh, most people think Japan's saving him for tomorrow's matchup against Korea. Um, but he started warming and his other dudes striking out two or three batters every inning. And then the phenom gets up and he starts warming and then he never came into the game, but uh, they played Korea tomorrow. So he might go then Uh, the U S squad. There is a a ton of talent on that team. Um, You know, guys who were basically one through, I think 50 is probably the lowest ranked um, prospect talent uh, on the, uh, the U S roster. But, um, there are a lot of guys on that roster that are going to be drafted and, and signed. And uh, the the talent that was on this same squad two years ago produced 10 first-round draft picks in the 2018 MLB draft. Um, this year's group, maybe not that group was kind of a, a dream team a couple of years ago, and they all are to a certain extent, but – this year's group, there's some guys to keep uh, an eye on. Pete Crow Armstrong is a, an outfielder out of California who is probably the top high school prospect right now in, uh, in the United States. And um, there's some really fun talent on all these teams, and it's been uh, it's been pretty good. So we're getting down close to the end of it. And then um, I am headed to Seoul on Monday uh, with the radio voice of the Lancaster Jethawks, Jason Schwartz, who is here. Uh, and helping out broadcasting the tournament. Jason and I are headed to Seoul on Monday. We're going to hang out there, go catch some KBO games. And then the following Friday, 
uh, or a week from tomorrow, I guess I should say, the 13th. He goes uh, home to California. I'm off to Italy for the Europe and Africa Olympic qualifier. So it's uh, just a month of, of other baseball-related things and minor league postseason. Right. Yeah, and, and uh, talk to me a little bit about the KBO because you've seen a KBO game now, right? Yes, yeah. So I um, three years ago – did uh, the Women's Baseball World Cup at the same venue where we are, um, which is just outside of the second largest city in uh, in South Korea, Busan, and uh, got to go to a KBO game, a, a Busan Latte Giants game three years ago, and then went again last night and met up with um, a couple of guys who are pretty well known on the, the baseball tweets, but Sungmin Kim, who is a writer for Fangraphs, uh, and Sungmin is a, a, a sole resident currently, um, and Kazuto Yamazaki, who's a writer for Baseball Prospectus, who lives in Tokyo, um, those guys came over, came down for the tournament, and we um, went to catch the subway, got a little bit late to the Busan Latte Giants game last night, but walked in, it was like the fourth inning, uh, and I told Jason Schwartz, I was like, well, I'm with the Dodgers fans, this is just like normal for you, and uh, he did not like my joke, and... <laughs> But we still had fun. We were there. The game kind of ground to a halt um, in like the fifth, which was great. So we got to walk around the ballpark and get some food. And, you know, Jason's eating fried squid and we're drinking random Korean micro brews. And um, but KBO games are amazing, man. Uh, Busan's team has really struggled this year. They're in last place in the 10 team league. And it's a midweek game. Midweek games already don't draw that well here uh, compared to the weekend games. But, you know, there's 8,000, 10,000 people there and it is still a party. I mean, it's I posted a video on Twitter of a pitching change in the sixth inning. Busan was down eight nothing. It's a midweek game for a last place team and they're doing songs and they're doing chants and they're jumping up and down. They got coordinated dances and everything. Um, it's a pretty incredible experience. And so when Jason and I go to uh, Seoul next week, um, Sung Min told us that uh, he'll take us around to some of the ballparks in that area. The, the KBO is 10 teams. Five of them are in the, uh, the Seoul metropolitan area. So we'll get a chance to catch um, hopefully two or three games when we're out there. And, uh, yeah, man, it's, it has been fun. They're getting down toward the end. I think the playoffs start in a couple weeks in the KBO. Um, but it is, uh, if you ever have a chance, if you're ever over here, anybody who's tuned in, if you're here, if you're in Japan, wherever you are, Taiwan with the Chinese professional baseball league there, these, these games over here are incredible everywhere outside of the U S is a different fan experience. And it is, uh, it is a ton of fun. Yeah. I really like that video you posted just because, you know, you, like you said, there's dancing going on and you go to any major league stadium and they're trying to do something even when the team is nothing, but at least everybody was participating. Yes, it, it wasn't just like, you know, blank behind the eyes and oh, we need to do this because whatever. Everybody was still into it, which I love. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. They all have. Uh, I wish I could remember some of the the chance now. Um, there are a decent amount of, of import players of uh, American guys who are on KBO rosters. They're limited, I think, to three per roster. But um, Jacob Wilson was the uh, first baseman for the Latte team last night. Jacob Wilson, uh, who was uh, formerly a member 
originally drafted by the uh, St. Louis Cardinals, formerly a member most recently of the Washington Nationals organization. Um, he's over here. He actually started this season uh, with the Nationals. He was in Fresno to start the year this year. He played 55 games there, and now he's over here. Um, but they've got, you know, like a chant with Jacob Wilson's name in it and a song for Jacob Wilson. And um, it's, it is pretty It's pretty amazing. Brock Dykeshorn is over here. He pitches for Latte. Um one of the best Brooks names in Raley. baseball, Brock Dyke. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brooks Raley started that game last night um, for for Latte against uh, Ben Lively, who is now over here, who was pitching for the Samsung Lions. Um, so it's it's pretty random. Actually, Sungmin posted a picture on uh, on Twitter that I was in, and a couple minutes later, he gets a text message that says, "Hey, tell Tyler Mon I say hi," and it's from a pitcher named Chad Bell, who I worked with with the Myrtle Beach Pelicans in 2011. And Chad is over here now, uh, pitching for the Hanwha Eagles. He's uh, been in the big leagues, pitched for the Tigers for a short time, um, and got injured, if I remember correctly. I think Chad had Tommy John surgery, so he ended up over here. Uh, he has pitched extremely well. He was with the Tigers. Um, just as of uh, 2017, 2018, it looks like. Um, and it had Tommy John surgery prior to that. Comes over here. He's been fantastic this year for Hanwha. This season he's uh, got a, let's see, a 3.88 ERA, which is pretty dang good in the KBO, which uh, shares a lot of similarities, I think, to, you know, like 2019 AAA baseball. Uh, and uh, so that was kind of random, like just these dudes who turn on the TV one night and Joe Wheeland is pitching. I used to ride a bus around with both Chad Bell and Joe Wheeland. Um random guys who jared hoying is over here who was on that same team apparently what i'm saying is the entire 2011 myrtle beach pelicans roster is playing in korea <laughs> that's what i'm trying that's what i'm driving at so there now we now we know there we go <laughs> so anyway uh let's get started on this week's episode of the show before the show as it has been a packed week all across the minor leagues and uh the postseason has arrived we've already seen a champion crown congratulations to the johnson city cardinals who won their fifth appy league title um the triple a playoffs have started no one can kill the durham bulls the uh the zombie postseason team uh will will never go away the durham bulls are back in um and the uh the triple a international league and pacific coast league getting things started Triple A playoffs are always super fun. They're also very interesting because uh, they involve players who, if not pushing for postseason berths and postseason rings, could be up at the major league level. Um, but what do you see? Right now we've got two PCL semifinal series between Iowa and Round Rock on one side, Las Vegas and Sacramento on the other, and two Governor's Cup uh, semifinal series, one between Scranton, Wilkesboro, and Durham, and the other one between Columbus and Gwinnett. Give us some AAA thoughts as we kick off strike one this week, Sam. Yeah, so we're going to kind of turn this into a prediction segment because we don't normally predict – division winners or we don't try to look it out like that because it doesn't usually matter but it's the playoffs we might have a little bit of fun but before i get into predictions let me just give a quick shout out to the scranton wilkesbury rail riders because the way they punched their ticket to the playoffs was insane um they ended up tying with syracuse for the il north i think we talked about that last week that race was getting crazy um it was a game 141 they had to have a tiebreaker game that they didn't go to other tiebreakers. They literally played another game in Scranton this week. Uh, Scranton wins that game 14-13 to 13 after having going down, I think, 6 nothing. Um, they were down again later in the game. They had to score eight runs in the eighth inning. 
Um, absolutely insane game. Read the, the recap on that, and we have a bunch of highlights from that game as well. Um, so Scranton Wilkesbury punching their ticket to the IL playoffs was really fun to watch. But for a team coming out of the IL, uh, as it stands right now, we've got Columbus against Gwinnett in one series and Durham against Scranton Wilkesbury, as Tyler mentioned in the other. Uh, I think I like this Gwinnett team most. Um, in part for for the obvious reasons, you know they they brought up Christian Pache, they brought up Drew Waters in August, they brought up Ian Anderson in August, and those guys have had mixed results so far, I would say. But um, you know, especially Ian Anderson has struggled a little bit. Pache is catching fire there at the end of the year, but they also have a good mix of veteran talent, and not even veteran talent, but like major league ready talent. Adam Duvall is their starting left fielder. The guy was an All Star a couple of years ago. Uh, right now, then you got Pache in one of the other outfield spots. You got Waters, and the other one, either one is capable of playing center field. Uh, it's just whoever they decide to play there. The other one gets moved to right. Um, but right now, they're actually playing Austin Riley in right field because he's rehabbing. Austin Riley, remember at the beginning of the year, was one of the top prospects in the Braves system. Graduated because he his bat was so hot that they moved him to the outfield, found a spot for him in Atlanta. He's rehabbing now. Uh, in another universe, he's still with the team because he's only 22 years old. Now he feels like a not a has-been, but somebody who's done this before. Um, but still having his bat in the lineup here for for at least some part of the I.L. playoffs is going to be huge. When he leaves, you replace him with Waters or Pache. Last night in game one against Columbus, uh, it was Pache who had the night off. He came in as a pinch runner. That's a really good weapon to have off the bench. Um, you know, As we talked about before, the Braves' system is particularly loaded with pitching, but especially at the upper levels, they started Tucker Davidson last night. Uh, didn't quite work out. So this is I'm kind of behind the eight ball a little bit because Gwinnett is already down one nothing in the division series. But I think there's a lot of talent here for them to get out of that uh, out of that league and potentially break Durham's streak. Um, the reason why I'm not pick, picking Durham is I think they've called up too much of the talent, which is fine. You want them in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is going for a wild card spot right now. Um, but when you lose a Nate Lowe, they're about to lose Kean Wong. Finally, after Kean Wong has been in AAA for far too long, um, and they're just slowly getting stripped to pieces. I don't know if they can outlast a Gwinnett, who has all this talent, who's probably not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, over in the PCL, kind of for similar reasons, I'm, I'm taking the Las Vegas Aviators. The Aviators actually won their first game against Sacramento. Uh, they won nine to three. Uh, one reason I like them over Sacramento and over potentially Iowa or Round Rock. Uh, Round Rock, obviously a loaded team all season long coming in, in that Astro system. Um, they lose Kyle Tucker. Uh, I think their best player right now is maybe Miles Straw. Uh, but otherwise, Abraham Toro is not there anymore. Um, they are getting Forrest Whitley, but you don't know what Forrest Whitley you're going to get since he's come off shoulder problems and ineffectiveness all year long. Las Vegas... Yes, they lost Seth Brown, who was their best hitter all year long and is doing incredibly well with the A's now. Um, but look at the guys who are left. You've got Jorge Mateo and Dustin Fowler at the top of that lineup right now. Those two guys were top 100 prospects not that long ago. Uh, and then they've got Jesus Luzardo scheduled to pitch game three. They're already up one nothing against Sacramento. You get to game three, and Luzardo has looked really good in AAA as he continues to come back from injury. Um, it, it seems pretty... It's very easy to see a road out of the division series for the Aviators, and this is a team that all year long was really good. Uh, they finished with an 83-57 and record. That was only one game behind Round Rock for the best record in the PCL. 
didn't lose enough for me to think that they can't keep this rolling in the postseason. And if they continue to get starts from Luzardo, the further they get into the playoffs, I think that could be huge. Hopefully Luzardo makes the A's at some point because the A's could use his arm in, in some capacity. Um, but right now, my prediction for the AAA National Championship game this year in Memphis would be uh, Las Vegas against Gwinnett, and that would be really fascinating to see that mix of veteran and young talent kind of come together. I'm telling you, man, Durham Bulls, nobody can kill them. I know. That's, I feel like an idiot for not predicting the Durham Bulls because every time we do this, it. I think last year, though, we predicted Durham against Memphis. I want to say yeah, you're right. Because right. that was a repeat of uh, 2017. It was just like, what? why can't this happen again? And it did. Um, but Memphis is out this year. They missed the playoffs by six games, actually finished below 500. Uh, and Durham, I just, I think the Rays are, are taking that many games away. But, you know, that, they've proved me wrong in the past, so let's see if they can do it again. Strike two this week as we move along in this uh, post Labor Day episode of the show before the show. Gavin Lux, the Los Angeles Dodgers top prospect, has arrived at the major league level. Um, there was so much discussion this season of like, oh man, when are they going to call Gavin Lux up? Are they going to call Gavin Lux up? Um, but the rich get richer with the Dodgers adding one of the hottest prospects in all of baseball. Um, Lux already has uh, torched double A pitching this year. He obliterated triple A pitching. Uh, he OPS 1197 in 49 games at AAA. And now he's up at the major league level. The the Gavin Lux news arriving this week, Sam, for strike two. Yeah, Gavin Lux coming up was really exciting. Not because, you know, we, we knew it should happen. That's what I should say. It, it's not because it was surprising. It it should have happened. Uh, I loved what the Dodgers did. They kind of followed him around on social media. And just they get, they showed him getting his first jersey and finding out what his number is. And they, they showed him going into Dave Roberts's office for the first time. And uh, Roberts kind of giving him... Uh, you know, a little bit of slack for saying, like, why didn't you come up sooner? And then laughing about it because, you know, they both understand the situation. Um, but he is up, and, and that's something that the Dodgers deserve credit for. And not only is he up, they are finding playing time for him. He's played three games so far, all at second base. That's not his natural position. He is a shortstop, um, but he's not going to knock Corey Seager off right now anyway. Uh, but to see a guy rewarded after hitting 392 at AAA with a 1.197 OPS, you know, 13 homers in 49 games. When he started there, it seemed like he it was never going to stop, and it never really did. That's the thing is, is, yeah, he had some cold spots here and there, but finishing hitting 392 over essentially a half a season at the minors' top level, if that doesn't earn a major league call-up, then what are we doing here? Um, so to see him rewarded in that way is really exciting, and, and to see him plugged right into that lineup, I think he batted leadoff recently as well. So I, I questioned when... His major league debut, he batted eighth, and I was like, come on. Like, we know the, the guy's a better hitter than that, and Dave Roberts did know that uh, and is giving him his chances now. Um, in terms of what kind of player can, can Gavin Lux be, I mean, the bat's certainly going to play there right away. Uh, he finished with 26 homers this year between AA and AAA. Uh, yes, part of that is playing with the new AAA ball. I get that, but he was doing things that nobody was doing at AAA this season and doing them at age 21. Um, can he hold this down? For you know, the entire month, I think they're going to give him a lot of leadway. The Dodgers aren't really being threatened right now for the loss of a playoff spot. We'll see if he can be their playoff second baseman. If he's not, okay, well, he, he knows what the major leagues is like now, uh, especially after it sounded like they, they were saying they were going to call him, they were going to bring him to the majors but not make him active. That just seemed like such a bizarre strategy. So to actually give him this chance now is really cool and 
Uh, you know, seeing what he can do from the left side of the plate will be interesting how he makes those adjustments. Uh, we saw that him make them pretty much throughout his entire career. Uh, we had him, you know, on the podcast back in January. Uh, I tweeted out the link when he, when he started, and it's crazy to think, you know, when we talked to him, we were talking about a 2018 breakout uh, and the adjustments he w- made after a rough 2017. So even if he gets off to a slow start here, I'm not worried about him figuring it out, figuring out how his game works against Major League Pitching uh, and seeing what he can do. Uh, worst comes to worst, he's still going to be one of the most exciting young players going in the game going into the offseason. But I do think the skills are there for him to really make an impact for a Dodgers team that is probably the World Series favorites right now. And strike three this week. Gavin Lux gets the call, but some other guys will not. Who is not going to be coming up in September? Yeah, this is kind of upsetting because uh, it se- sounds like some clubs have officially gone on the record and saying, like, don't expect these guys to get here. That's one thing about September is, you know, we have a lot of questions going in and they get confirmed when guys come up. And then sometimes the organization outright says, hey, this guy's not coming here. Two of them belong to the Chicago White Sox system uh, with Rick Hahn, GM of the White Sox, expressly saying, like, hey, Luis Robert, Nick Madrigal aren't coming up. The reason he gave is that both guys played three levels in the minor leagues. And here's the quote, the exact quote I want to give about Rick Hahn on Luis Robert. Uh, Surpassed development goals, stayed healthy, performed at three levels. Instead of adding a fourth level, increasing games, as much fun as it would have been to see him continue, sometimes it's our job to say this is enough, which just feels like an excuse. Like, hey, this guy has performed everywhere he's gone. Uh, We don't want to challenge him again. It's like, but Luis Robert has done well everywhere he's played this year his lowest OPS for a club was 880 at double A uh, at AAA you know you want to talk about Gavin Lux knocking down the door Luis Robert played 47 games for AAA Charlotte this year hit 297 341 634 so at a 974 OPS 16 homers in 48 games that's a homer every three games basically uh, he had a 30-30 season across all three levels 32 homers 36 stolen bases I know he's had health problems in the past, uh, so just getting him to a place of, of playing 122 games is great. Um, but if he's not proving himself at at the AAA level, I don't know who can, basically. Um, he's not like a Ryan Mountcastle, who's somebody else I want to mention here in a little bit. Mountcastle has defensive questions all over the place. Is he going to be an outfielder? Is he going to be a first baseman? He was at one point a shortstop and a third baseman. Didn't work out there. He has some legit defensive issues to work out. Robert doesn't have that. He has real five-tool potential. Speed, power, hit tool, defense, arm, the whole thing. Uh, he doesn't have anything else to prove. I, this feels like you know, something with Eloy Jimenez last year. Yes, they brought him up and made it, made it work, but um, you know, I would have liked to at least see Robert get a chance to prove himself. Kind of in a similar way with Nick Madrigal. Nick Madrigal I have more questions about um, just because where is the power going to be? He hit four homers this year, but his contact rate is elite. He struck out only 16 times in 473 at-bats. Crazy stuff. Uh, hit 311 across all three levels, but actually got better as the season went on. Hit 341 at Birmingham, 331 at AAA Charlotte. Uh, you know, this guy just might have one of the best hit tools in the game. Power's not necessarily there, but the speed is. He's got 35 stolen bases. Just really unique in terms of how his skill set works. We'd love to see how that would work against Major League Pitching uh, right now. He's a second baseman. Yohan Mankata seems like he's moved over to third base permanently. Magical could fit in that Chicago lineup right away. Uh, it's, it's kind of unfortunate. Only 29 games, so a little bit fewer than Robert, but still. 
I think he would have no problem making tons of contact against major league pitching and at least getting his feet wet for a potential bigger role in 2020. So upsetting that Han also confirmed Magical will not be joining, basically for those same reasons as Robert. They don't want to challenge him to the fourth level. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle, real quick, was legitimately named the IL MVP. We can debate whether he should have been, uh, but still, he was the International League MVP. People who followed the International League closely believed he was the best player in that league this year. The Orioles still don't want to bring him up. They've said it's unlikely he'll be up in September which is disappointing. The guy hit 312, 344, 527. Spent all 127 games this year at Triple Norfolk. Uh, hit a career-high 25 home runs. Um, yes, grain of salt with the Major League Ball, or the Major League Ball coming to AAA and all that. Um, but still, he was going to play with that same ball at Baltimore. Baltimore needs to see what it has, I would say, to try to figure out what it's going to be in 2020. Pushing this back to potentially get a year of control down the line and they haven't said that explicitly but when it's a rebuilding club like this you always have to keep an eye on them keeping down prospects potentially to uh, delay the service time clock Uh, it's just kind of upsetting because I I would have liked to have seen what Mountcastle can do and is he worthy of a big role in this rebuild or is he just going to be a right handed bat that they need to fill in around around him or can he be the centerpiece of this lineup with Adley Rutschman coming up uh, pretty soon and a lot of really up-and-coming pieces in that Orioles system. The Orioles system is better than it used to be. Mount Castle is a part of that for sure, um, but how big of a part we won't know until he can finally make his debut and that's looking like it's going to be coming in spring of 2020 instead of the fall of 2019. And that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. joined this week on the minor league baseball podcast by number three prospect in the philly system number 14 overall pick in this year's draft bryson stott bryson how are you doing i'm good thank you thank you for having me yeah no thank you for joining us um so you're just finishing up your your first season your first taste of minor league baseball uh you spent most of it with class a short season in williamsport kind of take us where you are right now your first off season ever is just starting where are you in the process of uh, coming down off the season? Um, I mean, I'm really, really just really at home and just, just hanging out with, with some people that I, that I haven't seen in a while and, and just getting ready for instructs. Um, I leave to instructs on Sunday. So, um, instructs will, will be a couple of weeks and then, then I'll be home for the, the off season. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. So what do you do during this downtime? I know you said you're at, you're at home, which for people who don't know home for you is Las Vegas, um, you know, what do you do during this time? Is it literally just dropping baseball, not thinking about it, knowing instructs is coming or, uh, how do you kind of spend these days? Um, I mean, the, for the last two days I've just been, just been hanging out, but, um, I mean, I'll, I'll hit and throw and, and stuff the next couple of days to, to make sure I'm still in shape for, for instructs this coming Monday. And with the instructs right around the corner, did the Phillies give you any instructions on here's what we're going to be looking to work on you with or anything like that going into that period? Nope. Um, I mean, I'm just going with, with the full intention to, to get my all-around game better in, in every aspect of it. Hmm. All right, so let's kind of go through what you have done so far th- this year. As I said, you spent most of it in the New York Penn League with Williamsport. You hit 274, 370, 446 with five homers and, and 22 walks in 44 games. A strong first start for you. Um, what was your kind of most eye-opening part of 
minor league baseball and um, you know being a pro ball player every day? Um, I'm, I mean, I would say the the most eye opening part is is how fast you could you could get into one of those slumps. I mean, in, in college, you you have a bad week and you're you're two for twenty, one one for fifteen. But um, I mean, in pro ball, with that that playing every day and and being an everyday player, you you blink and you could be one for forty, one for forty five. So um, I'd say the biggest thing I, I learned this this season is is how how fast to to get out of those slumps and and what I need to do to to get back on track. Hmm. So, what is your kind of slump buster? What What did you learn, and how did what kind of adjustments do you feel like you made as the season went on? Um, I mean, I would just I'd say I just get back to the basics. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't change my swing, didn't change, didn't change what I was what I was doing. I was really just getting back to to using the whole field, and and I mean, I think I got those that week and a half, two weeks where I was really struggling. I think I got too too pull happy and and stopped using the the left side of the field, so. Um, just getting back to to my game and and using the whole field was was really got what got me out of it. Mm. And coming into pro ball, there's going to be a lot of arms that pretty much everybody you're seeing is, is new to you. Um, but what what did you notice about the way pitchers were throwing you as the season went on and how they were attacking you and trying and you, you know like you said you had to adjust back to using the whole field. Um, but what did you know, notice about the way they were going after you there early on? Um, I'd say. I'd say I'm being being in professional baseball, I think the pitchers could command the inside of this uh, part of the strike zone a lot better than than the college arms I was facing. So um, they would, I mean, they could come 96 miles an hour on the inside corner for a strike, and then then drop a change up on the outside corner. So um, just the way they command the whole plate was was kind of eye opening to me the, at the start. And uh, really, I think. Like I said, when I was getting in trouble, I was I was trying to pull those those outside off speed pitches and instead of letting letting the ball dictate where it was. So, um, yeah, I'd say the biggest difference between those those arms is is how well they command the inside of the part of the plate. Hmm. And uh, one thing I wanted to bring up with you, we talked about New York Penn League a little bit here, but your first game was seemingly, at least according to the box score, as memorable as it could be uh, in the GCL. Uh, according to the GCL, you had one at bat one home run, one walk. Uh, take us through that first day and what it was like going through that uh, and, and, you know, getting the first taste at the complex and doing so well so quickly like that. Um, I mean, I was definitely, I definitely had some nerves. I mean, I was there for, for a week or so just practicing and, and getting back in shape. Um, and then I, I finally got to play in the game. And, and I mean, my, my first at bat, I mean, I was kind of, kind of nervous. I, I didn't really know what to, what to expect? I knew I was ready, but I mean, it's still still your first at bat. It's like any first at bat, even in even in college. All my all my three years, my first at bat, I was had those nerves. So, um, just being able to to get a pitch up like I like I did and drive it was was a real confidence booster, and it and it kind of let the nerves go away. Yeah. What did did you get the ball after that? Yeah, a fan um, uh, went and went and grabbed it. So, I mean, that was pretty cool. Okay, cool. So, what did you do with it afterwards? Did you just send it home? Do you still have it? I mean, what what happened to that ball? Um, it's in my bag. Um, it's in my in my clothes bag that that I'm gonna take take home. So, um, I'm probably probably put it in a case and, and give it to my mom. Oh, very cool. Um, so yeah, so this being your first full, first season anyway, uh, we touched on you know you being a, a relatively high draft pick coming into the year. Um, you know, what was this spring like going into this? Because you weren't drafted out of high school. 
I'm sure part of that had to do with wanting to stay at home and, and wanting to go to UNLV. But what was it like going through this process and, and knowing your name was getting thrown around in the first round and then eventually hearing it called by the Phillies? Um, I mean, I didn't really didn't really look too much too much into that because you you really never know. I mean, you, I mean, anything could happen. Some something in the top of the draft could shake up and it could affect the whole thing. So, um, I mean, I wasn't really wasn't really listening to all that that outside stuff until until it actually happened. So, um, draft day was awesome. I mean, I was, I mean, I had had every emotion. I mean, I was had the nerves. I mean, I had the anxiety i just had i had everything going on and and when my name finally got called it was it was one of the greatest moments of my life Hmm. and let's talk about what went into that because uh you know you were pretty well known unlv you you played in the cape in 2018 you were on uh team usa as well and then 2019 it looked like you popped up even more your ops was above a thousand for the first time you hit 10 home runs which was more than six more than you hit the year before which was only four um, what what allowed you to kind of take off this year, especially in the power department? Um, I'd say I just just got more mature and, and more physical. Um, I mean, I hit I hit thirty doubles my sophomore year, but some of those doubles my junior year started started getting that backspin and and then just flying out. Um, it didn't my swing didn't really change. I wasn't really trying to lift lift the ball. It was like I said, just some of those doubles I was hitting off the wall my my sophomore. And even my freshman year, um, got a little more backspin and a little more carry, and, and they just they just flew out. Hmm. And what were you doing to generate that backspin? Was it just physical maturation? Was it something you were changing to produce, you know, get those doubles out of the gaps and over the fence? Um, what allowed the, that process to happen? Um, yeah, I would, I would say it's just being more physical. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in the weight room in the fall and winter, and uh, – I mean, I got my my legs and and my core stronger to where I could get generate that that bat speed and and have that torque along with my swing to to generate some of those some of those home runs. And you know, how do you feel like that kind of translated? I know you said you didn't change any part of your game coming into into pro ball. Um, you know, when you first became a Philly, what did they talk to you about your game, and what did they say they liked most and thought would translate the best uh, to the pro level? Um, I mean, they they love my defense and and how I and how I play um, defense and in the multiple positions I could play. Um, I mean, my swing, my my swing. If they need to, if they want to touch up some things, I mean, obviously it's it's their job and it's what they're paid to do. So, um, I mean, I'm all open for that. So, um, nothing really changed this this season. So, um, going forward, um, I'm not really sure, but uh, I think think they like my swing. Yeah, no, and it's interesting to hear you mention they liked your defense most. Um, I think a lot of people like your swing, and then defense is something that's you've improved on, but you played a little bit of second base this year. You played a little bit of third base as well. How much do you expect to continue moving around, or have the Phillies said, hey, we want you to mostly stick it short because we like you there? Um, I mean, I think I played I played most of my games at short. Um, I played a, probably a handful of games at second and, and third combined, but – um, I mean, I'm I'm very open to, to playing those different positions, and and the more versatility you have is is better better for you and better for the organization because you're not you're not a roadblock in in their um, their progression to to keep moving players and, and moving players around. So um, I think the more the more versatility you have is is the better. Hmm. And uh, one part of your offensive game I wanted to bring up as well is you had a really good walk rate in college. 
Uh, I think every year, except for your freshman year, you had more walks than strikeouts, especially this junior year. You had 55 walks against only 39 strikeouts. Uh, that translated pretty well to the New York Penn League. You had a 370 OBP and 22 walks in 44 games, like I mentioned before. How do you develop that part of your game? You know, just having a good eye for the strike zone and, and good plate discipline, knowing to lay off pitches outside of the zone. Um, just know, I mean, you got to just trust your, I mean, my base thing is just, is just trusting the people hitting behind you to, to do their job and, and bring you in. Um, my junior year in college, I, I hit first. So, um, I mean, there were some games that I just got flat out pitched around to, to start the game and, and just having, having people behind me knowing that they're going to do their job. And it really helped me not, not swing at those, those changeups 2-0 or, or 3-0 and, and getting me, getting myself out. So. Um, just kind of, kind of knowing who's behind you and and what what the what the team's doing and if there's there's bases open and, and stuff like that to to play into your to your factor. Hmm. And uh, now that you are part of the Phillies organization, you spent a couple months in there. Uh, you know, how would you kind of describe the Phillies, you know, player development philosophy? How do you feel like you've plugged into that and, and what they're looking to do in, into creating you into a future uh, major league player? Um, I think I fit in, fit in good. Um, I mean, me and the, the hitting coordinators get along, get along well. And, and same with the defense, the defensive coordinators and, and all the coordinators. I mean, they're, they're awesome. They, they have the best interest for, for all the kids and all, all the players in the, in the organization. So, um, I mean, just having us follow their lead and, and they, I mean, they know what they're doing. They're, this is what they get, get paid to do and, and get us to, um, that major league level, like you said. So, um, just buying into everything they're saying and, and kind of taking all all their information in is is key for me. Mm. And what's one piece of information you feel like has been the most helpful uh, this summer? Um, I'd say on the hitting part is just doing the doing damage with the strikes that we're getting instead of. Um, I mean, you get you get two zero, you get into that hitter's count, and, and the last thing you want to do is foul one off. I mean, for me, lefty, so um, foul one off to left field or or behind the third base dugout. Um, when you get those pitches, you really you really can't miss them because you don't know if you're going to get them again. So, um, really doing damage with with the pitches that you know you should do damage with was my my biggest thing. Hmm. And I mentioned before your time with T- Team USA, you played on the collegiate national team. Uh, what is your best memory of that? Because usually those are surrounded by guys who get taken pretty high, and you're around some of the best talent you'll ever be around on any baseball diamond. Uh, what do you particularly remember from that experience? Um. I mean, the, the overall experience was, was awesome. I mean, I'll never, never forget that. I'd say the, the best thing was, was the friendships that, that we've made with, with each other. I mean, I mean, you got Rutschman and you got Vaughn, um, Shoemake and, and Young and all those guys that you, you see go, go really high. And I mean, you, you know, you've created some of the, some of your best friendships with those guys in that, that three, three and a half weeks that we were, we were all together. So, um, just playing. Playing other countries and with our country across our chest, and and just having so much fun with with those guys was was probably the biggest thing that that I'll take away. Hmm. And what's something that rubbed off on you that you saw from another guy uh, during that time? Like you said, it was only three weeks, but it, it's an influential three weeks. What's something you remember about that that you still put into your game now? Um, just the way everyone everyone goes about their their business. I mean, it was never. I mean, we always we always had fun, but when it was business, it was business. So, um, just the overall way that that we all handled the games and and how we went about our business, knowing if if you go over four, that the guy behind you is going to pick you up and 
and stuff like that. It's just relying on relying on them and and how we and how we all kind of meshed and, and went about the game. Hmm. And um, you know, was that the moment being on Team USA? I know you were also at Wareham uh, in the, in the Cape League as well, and UNLV numbers were pretty good as a sophomore and freshman. But was it that Team USA moment where you thought like, hey, this is I'm really close to being a first round pick, or was there some other time in your college career where you noticed, hey, this this could be my uh, profession going forward. Um, I'd say Team USA was probably a, a big, a big one. Just knowing, knowing these are the these are the kids that you. I mean, I wouldn't say competing against, but the kids that are are in the first round talk and and how well you played played with them and and around them was was a big thing for me to to see where I mean my my skills that matched up to to some of those. I mean, you got those big Power Five schools in there and. And then um, you seeing how well you match up with with them. So um, I'd say that was a that was a big one, and and just playing and, and doing doing what I did in my my three years in college and, and summer ball was a I'd say that was my my biggest thing. Hmm. And and it's interesting to hear you talk about you know measuring yourself up against those guys. Uh, you know where, wherever you're going to go from then on. Even then, you're you're on the same team, obviously, and this is something that translates to the minors. You're on the same team, but these are guys you're trying to you know beat out sometimes for jobs or something or trying to get ahead of on the depth chart how do you kind of quiet that and how do you marry those two concepts of hey these are guys I'm competing with and, and um you know but also that we're on the same team we're we're having the same goals we're trying to win this ball game uh how do you kind of marry those two concepts um i mean i'd say i mean i'd say nobody nobody was really out to to hope someone didn't do good just so they got their time and and stuff like that i'd say we were all just i mean i rooted for everyone on the team and i wanted everyone to to do good and there's i mean the whole team was like that you wanted to see everybody wanted to see each other get their name called in the draft whether it be the first round or the 40th you just you wanted to see you wanted to see their name get called and and you wanted their future to be bright so um i mean i'd say we were never me personally i was never never rooting against somebody and and i mean i feel that's the same for the the rest of the team how much do you still t- uh, stay in contact with all those guys? Is there like a big group text chain or something like that or something on WhatsApp that you guys are staying in contact with? I mean, how does that group stay together? Um, yeah, we have, a, we have a couple of group chats with, with some of the guys. I mean, I stay in touch with with um, a lot of the position players. I'll, I'll stay in touch with like a couple of the pitchers. But um, if we ever need anything or, or need advice for – on on hitting or or fielding, I mean everyone's everyone's one call away, so it's no no biggie. Very cool. Well, one thing we mentioned too is that you are a Vegas native. You went to UNLV. I feel like Vegas the last couple of years has almost become a center of baseball uh, between Joey Gallo, Bryce Harper, obviously Chris Bryant. So many stars coming out of that. Uh, what kind of effect has that had on the region and, and the popularity of baseball uh, around Vegas? Um. I mean, I'd say it's big. I mean, there's there's a lot of talent in Vegas, and and I mean, sometimes the the kids will get overlooked, and and they they know that, but um, they we still go out, and I mean, they'll still go out, and they'll they'll play their game, and and know that know that they're in a they're in a kind of a hotbed of baseball. So, um, I mean, we they always go to those they always go to those tournaments in California and Arizona and Texas and all those those big those big schools are out there, and and they they won't get missed if if they're playing well. So. Um, I mean, it's kind of, like you said, it's kind of, kind of been a baseball hotbed the last couple of years. So, 
um, to keep that going and, and keep the baseball the baseball culture in, in Vegas is, is awesome. Yeah, and, and why do you think that hotbed has developed? I mean, it's a cliche to say what's in the water, but um, you know what's allowed this to, to bloom in the way it it has? Uh, do you think? I'd say it's just the the ability to play for for twelve months. I mean, you never it's never you're never snowed in or or something like that. You could you always have access to the field. It might be a little cold, but um, you always have access to the fields, and you can always be outside. So I just say that the twelve months of of baseball is. I mean, if the kid loves it, he'll be out there all twelve months and and perfecting his game. And and I think that's that's a big reason for for the hotbed. And, and you mentioned before too how kids might feel overlooked by others in California or Texas or Florida. Was that something you felt coming out of high school and going to UNLV that you had may, maybe had been overlooked uh, at least by the pro ranks, or were you not even thinking about the pros coming out of high school? Um, I mean, I wasn't. The pros wasn't really on my. I mean, obviously it's always a dream, but it wasn't. I mean, I didn't really think it was that big of a reality until. Um, probably my senior year, there was a couple scouts here and there, but it wasn't, I mean, I pretty much was set on college and and knew I was going to college. So, um, it wasn't really, wasn't really in, I would say like a reality, I'd say from my thought process, my first couple of years in high school, um, the college, the college thing, I, I don't think, don't think I was overlooked. I talked to, talked to a lot of schools and I mean, I just saw the the program and, and what UNLV had to offer. And, um, I mean, it was right in my backyard, so. Um, I couldn't beat it. All right. Well, uh, we'll end on these ones. Uh, you are now a Philadelphia Philly. Uh, you know, you haven't reached Philadelphia yet, and that, that could come down the line in the next couple of years. But what did you know about the actual city of Philadelphia, the sports culture there? Um, you know, what did you know about it before the Phillies called your name? Um, that their fan base, their their fan base is is huge. They're very big sports fans. I mean, they're not. They're not that those fake fans that that are just acting acting fans. They they genuinely care about the teams and and the players in on those teams. So, um, I mean, I knew that that going in, and and the cheesesteaks obviously was my was my <laughs> thing from from the actual the city of Philadelphia. So, um, those are my my two biggest things. And, and what have you learned since? I mean, I mean that's everybody knows about, you know, throwing snowballs at, at Santa and like you said, cheesesteaks and all that. But now that you've been part of the organization, you, you've gotten a chance to go to Philly. Um, what have you learned about the culture since? Um, I mean, I just learned more about how, how genuine the fans actually, how much they actually care about you and, and the team itself. Um, they're really, I mean, they're real baseball fans and they're, they really, they really want you to win and, and want you want the best for you. So, um, I mean, they're awesome. I mean, you can't you can't beat that, and, and how those people feel about their team, and and uh, going forward, it should be should be pretty cool. All right, so we'll end on this one. I work with a Phillies fanatic. I, I don't even know if I'll call him fanatic, but a Philly area native, big Phillies fan, Benjamin Hill, who's also on this podcast in another segment. And I asked him, "What should I ask a Phillies prospect?" And he he came up with this question, so I'm going to pass it off on him. But he said, "What is your favorite Rocky movie?" Oh, um, my favorite Rocky movie. Uh, I'd say, I mean, you got to be the first one. It's the first one is, I mean, I like all the first in, in every movie. So uh, I'm going to go with the first one. Okay. And that's funny you say that. Cause he actually asked, which is 
your favorite sequel because so many people say that the first one. So I'm not going to let you chicken out so easy. Which of the sequels do you like the most? Oof. Um, the sequel. Oh man, this is a tough one. This is a good, good, <laughs> uh, good question. Um, probably Rocky. I'm gonna go with two. Rocky two. two. Okay, that's a fair answer. No, Rocky two is a fair like. I would anything but Rocky five. I think you would be okay with. Even if you said Rocky Balboa, that sixth one they made a couple of years ago, you'd still be on a good track. But all right, very cool. Well, I think a, a lot of Phillies fans are, are going to feel a little bit closer to you now, knowing which of your Rocky preferences. But uh, Bryson Stott, right. thank you so much for joining us uh, this week. All the best going forward into Instructs next week. And uh, yeah, best of luck going into the offseason. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. Back in the, I don't want to call it a studio because it's definitely the office and we're not even in a conference room today. No, I'd call it a nook. A nook. We are in a nook. Back in the nook is uh, Ben's Biz, Benjamin Hill. Welcome back from the road. Thank How are you. you? I'm, I'm, it's great to be back from the road and um, I'm back from uh, all my 2019 season travels. Uh, the season's over, so I have no more, nowhere else to go. Of course, I'll be in El Paso at the end of the month uh, <laughs> for the. Uh, Innovator Summit, the rebranded promo seminar, but uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, not today. I mean, later on in our lives. Yeah, right. We're not going to preview the Innovator Summit quite yet. Um, that's for a future podcast. But we, we do have you back, and you were just on the road in both Potomac and Hagerstown, as we talked about last week. Um, now that you get got a little bit more time to reflect, we're going to talk mostly about Potomac this week. Um, and you were there, as we discussed last time, for the closing of the fits, um, one of the what was the adjective we used last week? Uh, for the fits, yeah, uh, venerable, venerable, yeah. one of the most venerable Meyer League parks. I, uh, I refer to it as venerable in this uh, see, in this feature go. story. We'll we're going to make about. that stick by the end of this. Um, but you do have a story out today, so by the time everybody's hearing this, you can go check it out on the site about the closing of the fits, and, and it's called "On the Road: A Fond Farewell to the Fits." Um, having spoken to people around the situation with Potomac, um, you know, what were you able to put together for this story? Well, I mean, I think as we talked about last week, and if you do follow the minor league landscape at all, you already know this, uh, Fitzner Stadium, the home of the Potomac Nationals, uh, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, Prince William County. Um, you know, the stadium's not super old. It was built in 1984, certainly not new, but it's not one of those, you know, historic stadiums. But uh, for years, uh, the team has been trying to find uh, a new facility to move to, and for good reason. I mean, uh, I've heard this the Fitz referred to, referred to as a glorified high school stadium, and that's really not too far off the mark. Uh, you have a small grandstand, uh, a lot of bleacher seating on the first and third base side, um, you know, a small concourse, you know, behind the grandstand, um, pretty much none of the amenities you'd expect from a uh, current modern-day facility, both for fans and players alike. Um, you know, the team tried to stay in Prince William County. There were a lot of efforts uh, to that end. Um, they couldn't ever make anything work out with that and uh, finally ended up uh, striking a deal with Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is about 30 miles south 
uh, of where they're currently playing, where the Fitz is. Um, and, uh, you know, 30 miles is not too far away. I talked to fans who are from Fredericksburg, uh, not really with that being the angle, but they just happen to be you know, fans from Fredericksburg who happen to go to games with the Fitz. So it's not the sort of relocation that's completely prohibitive in terms of remaining a fan of the team. But that said, if you're familiar with the area, um, 30 miles in that, portion, in that part of Virginia on 95 with the traffic around there, is a lot. It's equivalent to 60 or 70 miles uh, in other parts of the country. So, you know, there are some fans who are saying, you know, maybe I'll go on the weekends, but uh, I'm really sad to see this place go. And even if they're from Fredericksburg or even if, you know, they're just psyched for Fredericksburg, you know, for fans who've been coming there a long time, you know, it's sad to say goodbye. And that was the angle of my story. I think it's very easy for us, I mean, just collectively us, you know, minor league observers, you know, to just see these old stadiums and just be like, oh, good riddance to that. I know our colleague Tyler is a former Carolina League broadcaster, uh, has his own uh, stories from the fits and opinions on it, and he probably would say good riddance, I would imagine. I do not want to speak for Tyler. Uh, He speaks for himself. Yeah, right. But, you know, it's the kind of place that doesn't have a great reputation, but my angle with these things is always regardless you know, 36 seasons, you know, how many thousands of games, how many memories, how many people who made a habit over the decades, you know, generationally uh, going to this place. And that's what I focus on in the story. And I just talked to some fans who were, you know, sad to see it go. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the story, I didn't, there wasn't anger. It wasn't this feeling of like, oh, we're being abandoned. And, ang- you know, I think most fans are realists and they understand that this is not a viable long-term situation and hadn't been, uh, you know, it's a topic we'll get into well in the future, but, you know, the professional baseball agreement expires at the end of 2020, which is the agreement between minor and major league baseball that dictates a lot of things, Um, you know, but among them, the number of uh, PDCs, player development contracts and affiliations. And it's certainly important for minor league baseball to kind of get the quote unquote problem facilities uh, out of the way as much as possible for the renewal of this agreement to show as strong an overall landscape as possible. So, you know, it's not just good for uh, this particular franchise is good for all of minor league baseball to get out of a stadium like the Fitz. Um, but nonetheless, I feel felt compelled to to be there and uh, you know kind of put a little bow on uh, bow on it and uh, you know get a little not emotional but you know talk to people who this meant something you know, to them. And I like those kind of fans. And I'd like to think that if my life was completely different, you know, I'd be the sort of person who would be a regular at a ballpark like the Fitz. I relate to it. I like the dumps. You know, I quote a guy who said, you know, it might be a dump, but it's our dump. And uh, I relate to that sentiment in life. I feel like I've uh, been a patron of a lot of dumps through the years, and I, and I like that mentality. Well, I mean, even dumps or not, uh, you talked about the Fredericksburg fans in here and going through the story. And, you know, these parks are just places of memories. And somebody talked about how Garen Cicchini just flipped a ball to his daughter, and her, his daughter became a baseball fan for life because of that. I mean, when these parks close regardless of quality it's when entire chapters of people's lives kind of go to the wayside as well um so i I like when you kind of bring that perspective on the ground of what we're losing in these parks as exciting as it will be to open up a new stadium and a more modern one for sure in fredericksburg um you know things get left behind and, and that's what this story is kind of a reminder of um speaking of kind of the the history of the Potomac Nationals and the legacy of the Potomac Nationals during their time in Woodbridge. One of the most fascinating things that they always do is just really unique bobbleheads. Um, you did a story on this as well. What can you kind of tell us about that legacy of Potomac? 
Yeah, this is basically a, another Potomac story I wrote, uh, the supplement to the farewell story. Um, that this and this came up on the site uh, on Monday, a holiday. You might have missed it, but it's still there on the internet. Yeah, the internet is forever. Um, yeah, you know, I was talking to the gen- the team's general ma- manager Brian Holland uh, in his office, and I was kind of compelled to do the story because as we were talking, just kind of big picture about the end of the stadium. I'm just looking at this cabinet on his de- you know, to the right of his desk that is just chock-a-block with these crazy bobbleheads that the team has given away, especially over the last five or six years. And uh, that kind of spun off into a whole separate conversation, and I wrote a story about it. And I think the mentality there is, you know, he's, you know, Brian says, you know, we're one of the have-nots, and he uses the David and Goliath metaphor and says, uh, you know, we are uh, a uh, David in this situation. Uh, you know, we're not a big uh, giant uh, that has all the resources and the ability to, well, not crush, kill, and destroy like uh, Goliath might have. But <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Like, you don't have the re- the resources to uh, to blow things out, and you don't have uh, the amenities of the stadium that just make going to a game. Uh, you know, the stadium itself being an impetus to just go to a game. So you know, as a as a as a team kind of struggling in a. Um, you know, definitely older, bit dilapidated ballpark. Um, you know, it's not really right off 95. It's a strange location in this Prince William County, you know, office park, you know, full of like government buildings. Um, you know, they just went out of their way through the years, especially the last five or six years, to really blow out their theme nights. And they had this particular uh, strain of promotions, um, a lot of crazy bobbleheads in general, but starting with the Roger Bernardina Shark Arena. If you remember Roger Bernardina, he was known as the Shark. And that led to this idea to do not a bobblehead, but a figurine where Roger Bernardina was half man, half shark. And uh, that sort of spun off into this whole subcategory of bobbleheads the team did through the years of combining um, you know, animals and men into uh, very strange hybrid beasts in bobblehead form or figurine form. I mean, you had Jason Wolf as a wolf man, or Jason Worth as a yeah, wolf yeah, man. Right. Jason Wolf as a Worth man. <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to say. You had uh, Anthony Rendon, uh, Ant Man, you know, half man, half ant. You Bryce had Harper gobblehead for reasons that befuddle me. Well, they decided, you know, they decided, you know, he and he talked about that how, and this is the case in so much of minor league baseball front offices, things that start off as a joke, the idea still gets filed away and then it becomes reality. Um, they gave away a Bryce Harper gobblehead where Harper is half man, half turkey, and that was part of a uh, Fitzgiving promotion where they had like a full Thanksgiving dinner in the summer and gave away a Bryce Bryce Harper turkey bobblehead. Um, You know, Wilson Ramos, uh, Bufferine, you know, and he's already known as the Buffalo, so there is a Wilson Ramos half man, half Buffalo, uh, and on and on it went. And it wasn't just half man, half beast figurines and bobbleheads. You know, he talks about how they they went nuts on their uh, on their Seinfeld night, and there's a Frank Costanza Festivus Pole bobblehead. Um, you know, Carter Keyboom, um, Ghostbusters bobblehead. All these strange uh, mashups of pop culture and baseball, and uh, it's something that the the Potomac Nationals really. Uh, you know, made a name for themselves for, you know, uh, largely as a result of working in a difficult location, really trying to be creative and outside the box and having, you know, at least several nights a year that drew really big crowds on the strength of these uh, theme nights and uh, bobblehead and figurine giveaways. And, you know, I asked him, like, well, you're going to this new ballpark. The dynamic is going to be completely different. Do you think you're still going to have this promo mentality? And, you know, he said, I demand that it does. <laughs> it's, it's, it must. It's too special not to. And uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they do in Fredericksburg. And, of course, the kind of awkward asterisk with all this uh, Fitzner Stadium talk 
is that the real construction process, they did a groundbreaking in, for the Fredericksburg ballpark way back in February, but construction didn't really in earnest begin till this summer, just a couple months ago. Um, so it's given the timelines we've seen re- in recent years with new ballparks, it seems very optimistic to think this new ballpark in Fredericksburg will be ready by opening day. So it's a little awkward to write all these farewell to the fit stories right. and then be like, oh, yeah, they might be back in April. Uh, they, they are going to have a lease on the fits through 2020 as a contingency plan. But I said, you know, why not? This is the official ending. It's the end of the season. It's truly the end of an era. If the team does come back next year, you know, they're not going to do anything in the fits except just host the games. It's going to be as bare bones an operation as it can be. So this is really a goodbye to, you know, officially having baseball at the Fitz, even if it does come back for some ragtag homestands uh, at the beginning part of next season while they're waiting for the new ballpark. But uh, I'm excited to see what they do in Fredericksburg. And, you know, it's going to be basically the same market, uh, but they'll finally be operating in a stadium that is, uh, you know, 21st century in modern day. And I don't think you get into this in the, in the story, but when you have something like this with like you have to put Carter Keboom in a Ghostbusters uniform or Roger Bernardina make him into a half shark do you have to get the player's permission like how do you go through that he from said that side? with player stuff they always did their best to get a player's permission and you know with, because they're a Nationals affiliate and these were almost all Nationals players you know they already had kind of an in in terms of getting in touch with the players and they might have been most of them were Potomac alumni um so he said, you know, we always try to get the permission, but there is, and I'm not just speaking for Potomac here, but just in minor league baseball, there is a little bit of a, eh, let's just try to, <laughs> let's just let's just do this and uh, hope it's okay. Hope no one notices. Hope uh, the intellectual properties involved here or the people involved are okay with it. Um, it can be a little loose sometimes, but but yes, they 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 and he was you know talking. He did, does talk about that, or maybe he I didn't put it in the story, but he did go into that and, you know, talking to, like, Trey Turner. Uh, there was a Trey Turner road runner bobblehead and, you know, talking to Trey about it and, you know, sending him, you know, boxes of bobbleheads. And, uh, you know, I think these guys, for the most part, are on board with it uh, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. And also, I don't know if we mentioned it, but the ode to Tommy John surgery, it wasn't just like a salute to Tommy John, the pitcher. It was literally the surgery. It was like the bobble el- – it wasn't even a bobble elbow. Like how- Yeah, you called it a figurine. And, yeah. uh it shows half of a pitcher's torso. The pitcher is gripping a ball in his right hand, and um, the portion of his elbow is exposed where the surgery actually is done. And this uh, figurine features a removable UCL ligament. So, you know, big uh, big respect to the Potomac Nationals for doing this kind of crazy stuff and, uh, you know, getting away with it and uh, creating some excitement on their promotional nights, um, you know, within a situation where it was sometimes hard to, to draw big crowds, especially in the later years. Right. I'm, well, I'm glad to read in your story that they demand that they, this continues in Fredericksburg because uh, this is too cool and too fun uh, to just leave behind in Woodbridge. Uh, ben, I'm sure we'll be talking more about Hagerstown and upcoming trips and uh, or past trips uh, next week. Um, but, yeah, thanks for coming back and, and being back in the nook, as it were. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, sounds good. It's good to be back. It's always strange at this time of year to be like, wait, the season's over? I mean, we still got the playoffs. Um, talking about going to the Cyclones game tonight. I think I'm going to go to the Cyclones game go. tonight as a fan. 
and uh, you know enjoy it as much as I can. But yeah, the the official travel season is over. Still got you know some stuff in the can. We'll talk about Hagerstown next week, and then I'll have some odds and ends uh, certainly throughout September and October, and uh, keep that in season spirit going as long as I can because it's so hard to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. My uh, big thanks, as always, to Sam for taking the lead uh, on everything. When I go to, well, not next week's episode, but the episode the week after next, I'll be a little bit closer time zone-wise, so that should help uh, some things. <laughs> that should help things for us. I don't think people on the other end are going to notice yeah, that true. much of a difference. That's true. Other that's than true. May- maybe the episode won't come up on Saturday. Um but it'll be the off season, and things will be like so much quieter here. We could record on Tuesday if we really want. To. True, um, but we'll, true. We'll figure that out on down the line. We'll get it all sorted. Um, and a big thanks to you for tuning in this week to the show before the show. MILB.TV is the place where you can catch all of the minor league baseball postseason action from .TV leagues, and uh, you can sign up and catch the last couple of weeks of the minor league season. Um, right before the Arizona Fall League starts, just a couple of weeks from now. I know Darren Smith is thrilled. Uh, <laughs> and that'll do it for Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week. Uh-huh.